Students, when you go out into a larger world, you will discover that you're in the minority in a lot of ways. And you will think, man, what kind of bubble have I lived in for a very long time? It'll just be that way. And you'll think, maybe I'm the fool. And then if you're patient and you kind of sit with it and you keep listening to people, no matter what their perspective is or where their point of view is, you, you discover that along the way, even those that may have no place for faith in their world, they can't shake the fact that there is much that you might have been cultivated in your season in this life that you, you realize that they have a kind of respect for it. Maybe they don't go as far as where you go, but they can't just sort of wave it away and dismiss it out of hand. I have only heard this guy's name before. I've never read any of his work before. His name is Michel Houellebecq. He might be French. <laughs> he's a novelist, uh, an essayist. Uh, he's a filmmaker also. He's still alive, but he has not done a public appearance in like four years. And it turns out that I'm about to show you a very brief clip from a brief exchange that he has with a couple of interviewers back in 2019. And I don't speak French. I don't know if the translation you're going to see here is ideal. He's going to refer to other people too, um, namely a, an author in the 20th century named Pasolini. Here's the reason I'm going to share with him this. He has no place for faith in his world, but he does have respect for it. And what you're about to hear him say is that respect extends specifically to the Apostle Paul, who we're going to listen to more of this morning. And he is going to reference why he has that kind of respect for the Apostle Paul. Now, so mind with it. It's, hang with it. It's about 90 seconds. Just listen, and I promise I will explain why I'm, listening, I'm, I'm having you listen to it. But I think there's something here that we should grapple with. So just listen to this brief exchange between a couple of interviewers and him. Euh, il voulait me convertir au christianisme. <rire> euh, donc, il m'a offert la Bible. Euh, je l'ai lu. <rire> Ça ne vous a pas convaincu <rire> euh, Si, si. Euh, surtout Saint Jean et Saint Paul. Mm. Mais les, alors, les auteurs influencés par Saint Paul ne sont pas très nombreux. Il y, a, il y en a un autre, c'est Pasolini, mm. que j'aime beaucoup par ailleurs, mais... Euh, je ne sais pas, ça m'a tout de suite... Euh, parce que, euh, en plus de sa mégalomanie euh, qui, qui a marché, en plus, il a vraiment réussi à détruire le monde antique pour le remplacer par autre chose, quasiment à lui tout seul. Hein. Ce qui est extraordinaire, c'est la sensation de proximité. Euh, quand, quand je lis Saint-Paul, j'ai l'impression qu'il est là, que je peux l'entendre halter. Presque. C'est hallucinant. Quoi. Et ça, bon, ben, c'est une chose que peut faire la littérature, oui d'avoir une personne où vous avez l'impression qu'elle est à côté de vous et qu'elle qu qu dit elle-même son, son texte. C'est impressionnant. I know it moves fast and he, and he brings up a lot of threads there in just a few seconds, but he has a deep respect for, for the Apostle Paul. He reads Paul as literature and nothing more. But even as he listens to Paul no matter how ancient Paul speaks from, whatever ancient point of view that he speaks from, as he put it, it's almost like he is, when he reads Paul, it's like Paul is sitting right there. Proximité. He's here. Paul gets me. 
there's something to what he says that is eminently relatable. And here's a person that has no place for believing in a God. If you are only with us for the first time today, we have been trying to lean into the possibility of what does it mean to believe in the Holy Spirit? We say it in the creed, we, we speak of him often, we've, we've sung about the Spirit here this morning, but how, how, is, how is the Spirit anything more than a set piece in the way we think about following Jesus? Is that all the Spirit is? He's there, but what else? What does it mean to trust that he is there, that he is real, that he is active? And, and last week, one of, the doctor of our, one of the doctors of our souls in this church, Brad Owen, exhorted us, one who was very familiar with the, the intricacies of the interior life. He knows how to speak to it and navigate that world. He, he was there to confirm to us that, yes, Michelle, Paul gets us. Paul understands something about us that even though we are separated by thousands of years of language and history and culture and experience, is as if he is sitting there to understand us. And I would argue that in the same way that Paul gets us, yes, also the Spirit gets us. I can't speak for Michel Hulelebeck, but I think he would say that the reason Paul is relatable is that Paul understands our condition, who we are, what we face, what it's like to be human. And that the longer that we come to grapple with the sense of our condition, we realize that if something good is to happen to us, it's almost like something's got to happen from the outside, like an intervention. And all along the way, whether you are young or you're old, there is a sense in which we kind of feel like we need somebody to show us what is the way. What should be the overriding intention for life? In those ways, I think Michel Houellebecq finds Paul rather relatable. And it just so turns out that if Paul gets us, so does the Spirit. And we're going to pick up from where we left off last week with Brad exhorting us, and we're going to travel along into Romans chapter 8. But along the way, we're going to discover that the Spirit gets us too. Not only in the condition that he addresses in us, but also in the intervention he applies to us and the intention that he assists us in. The condition he addresses in us, the intervention he applies to us, and the intention he assists us in. That's how the Spirit gets us that you'll see. So we're going to get a running start from where Brad led us last week and head into Romans chapter 8. So if you would, let's stand. We'll start in Romans chapter 7. We'll start in verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I want to lead off where Brad led off last week in a rather brilliant choice of cinematic and, and literary illusion that really frames up what we mean by the kind of condition that the Spirit addresses. And that would be a callback to the Lord of the Rings, specifically the two towers, specifically the character of Gollum. Right? You just think he's a gaunt, hairy, sort of menacing, kind of nasty figure with you know pointy teeth and things like that, saber-toothed teeth. But he is really a perfect picture, if you will, of the kind of thing that we need to understand ourselves by. And you're going, whoa, <laughs> how so? Let me tell you. Gollum is attracted to and then seduced by and finally corrupted by this ring of power. He sees it. He delights in it. He demands it. He takes it. And he's corrupted by it in the sense that all other things that are a part of him, every other desire that he has starts to get warped and distorted and disordered such that he becomes full of malice and murder even, even to the point of taking the life of his own brother who he then fights over the, the ring with. He is corrupted by that desire and everything changes in him. And yes, that is a cinematic literary character, but it is a perfect way of thinking about us for two reasons, and I'm going to give you one of them right here. It is not for no reason that Peter Jackson films that CGI scene with Andy Serkis playing Gollum in split screen. You see Gollum in one frame and you see him in another. And in those two frames, you see two versions of Gollum in one person. There is the one that is devoted entirely to himself that is full of malice, that is full of murder. You see it in his teeth, the way he flares his teeth. And then the other scene, you see a, a part of Gollum that wants an end to all of that wickedness within him. And it is a war. It is a war between selves in the same self. He is two minds in the same being. And so when Paul, Michel, talks about our condition... He has it summarized there in verse 21. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God of my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. It is a divided heart. There are two radios with two radio stations playing. And I don't know which one to listen to. And if you want that summarized even more succinctly, all you had to do was back up to verse 19 when he says this. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This is my heart. This is why he gets us. And if we can step out of Middle Earth and come into the real earth for a moment, is, is Huelebeck right? Does Paul get us? Darn tootin' he does. Sometimes 
for you and for me. It happens after the fact. Sometimes it happens even in real time. What happens? Circumstances unfold. You know what the right thing to do is. You know what the moment calls for. And it has a certain appeal to you. But there is not the slightest pull in you to do what you know is right. You know what's loving. You know what's courageous. But there's this wall. This shackle. This block. This resistance to doing what you know is right. It's there. And you feel it. Flip it around. Other opportunities, other circumstances present themselves when you have a chance to be naughty, (laughs) to inflict pain of some sort, verbal, emotional, or worse. And you know it's painful, and you know whatever you're conceiving of is not going to help, and it's not going to heal, and you know that there's this delicious little devilish desire that will give you a little bit of satisfaction You know it's there, and then, oops, did I do that? And it's, in any sense, maybe sometimes not an oops. It's sometimes worse than an oops. It's like a knife in the back. You know it's wrong, but you don't care enough to stop. This is me. This is us. This is Paul. And as you heard Brad speak last week, there's been a lot of ink spilled on whether or not Paul is referring in chapter 7 to a moment in his life before he ever came to understand that Jesus got him, or is it after the fact? And there's a pretty excellent case to be made that what Paul is talking about is after the fact that he came to get that Jesus gets him. That actually he's received the gift of the Spirit, both to understand Jesus and fall on his knees before Jesus and come to be interred to Jesus. And yet still, here is the condition he finds himself in that the Spirit has to address in him. He is still a divided heart. This is where he is. And that resistance is still profound. Sinclair Ferguson, he's a Scottish pastor, he's now serving a a very small church somewhere over in Edinburgh, Scotland, he he made it, he put it this way, you and I will never graduate from Romans chapter 7. It is your story. It is your song. Sometimes having a hard time praising my Savior all the day long. That's Romans 7. Why, Why do we have to grapple with that sense of our divided heart, even if if Jesus has become too real to us through the working of the Spirit in us, I'll tell you. If you don't grapple with the way in which your heart is still divided, if you are not capable or conscious of the fact of what you have in you as a capacity to act in an absolutely contradictory fashion to all of the holiness, the splendor of holiness that we spoke of in First Chronicles, if you think you're incapable of that, you're a danger to yourself. You are foolish and naive to think that you are not capable of walking in a way that is monstrous. That's that's part of you. That's capable in you. You got got to grapple with that side of the coin. But you also got to grapple with the other side of the coin that in fact holiness is possible. 
that you may in fact, as Paul speaks there, that the law in my inner being, my, the law of my mind, it's a delight to me. I think it's holy and righteous and good. He says it as much in Romans chapter 7. He finds Jesus' commands about what you do with your words, about what you do with your anger, about what you do with your lust, about what you do with your relationships, that there is wisdom in that, and there's a beauty to that, and there's a willingness to follow that in that way. If you think that's not possible for you, if you're just sort of going like, yeah, I'll never get it, and so I'm indifferent to it, then that just makes you a cynic. It just makes you harden to the possibility that holiness is both possible and good. And then, uh, to borrow a, a, a slide from a, a, a really bad sequel, but in Superman 3, <laughs> right? With, with, you know, Richard Pryor, who somehow gets the, the, the chemical makeup of kryptonite, and, and there's one element that he doesn't have a factor for because that's from Krypton and he's on Earth. And so he just types in another, he's, he types in tar because he's looking at his, his cigarettes and he goes, well, how about tar, right? And so, and then Superman gets this version of kryptonite that's got tar embedded in it. And what happens to him? In his desire for nobility and virtue, he's changed. <laughs> Ends up in the bar and he's given up. He's still Superman. He's still wearing the cape, but he's all smattered and he's sort of given up on the possibility that goodness is good that's a silly sequel but that is what we can end up embracing naivete about what we think we're not capable of or cynicism about what we think we're only capable of neither of those work the condition we're in is that both are possible but they don't fit Either of them don't fit. They don't work. And they don't account for what is also possible. And that's why Gollum is another perfect reason why we might think of ourselves in his terms. Because if you remember the clip from last week, what is the Gollum, the part of Gollum that wants to be rid of his wickedness, what does he do? He sort of screws up his courage and he says, Go away and never come back. Go away and never come back. And then for a moment, the evil golem like, disappears. And he doesn't hear that voice in his head. And that's what, guess what? That's us. If I can just will it away, if I will just sort of resolve myself to tell myself, get rid of the wickedness, and then maybe the wickedness will go. And then, look, <laughs> you know how that story ends for him, right? That wicked part is alive and well. You and I come up with strategies or come to an assumption that if I just tell myself long enough that I'm going to not be unholy, that it will dissipate. Friends. Friends. Bruh. For you older people, if you want to learn how to say bruh, just think brusitis, but leave off the situs. Bruh. What a dork. Okay. The Spirit addresses our condition by secondly applying an intervention. What is that intervention? What are we talking about there? Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There it is. Now look, every verse in chapter 8 is as thick as wolf brand chili. Um, you could devote a whole verse 
as several preachers do, to one verse. I'm not going to do that to you. Especially when Paul will use words in, in multiple ways, even within the same paragraph. And the word that he uses in multiple ways in the same paragraph is the word law. The law of the spirit of life. What? what? Law like in command or rule? Not, not exactly. You know, it's not been so long ago that we referred to what is anticipated in the New Testament with the coming of the Holy Spirit from Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and your heart will be sprinkled clean. Ezekiel and Jeremiah, along with him, anticipated a day when the law that was on stone would somehow be a law written upon our hearts. That that which we saw, and that which we heard, and that which we were told to obey, it was there, we knew it, we were, we, we were kind of cultivated in that, enculturated in that, and then at some point, that law starts to take up residence in us such that it becomes a delight to us. The law of the spirit of life is hearkening back to a phrase we pulled from Boris Pasternak in our series on Ephesians. He's talking about a kind of an inward music. Uh, you go to a dance and uh, the DJ puts on a dud and the dance floor clears. Sit down, time for a drink, right? Um, because he's picked a song that's like thud. And then he scrambles, grabs another song, and everybody's out there dancing to YMCA, right? Because that song has kind of captured you and beckoned to you. It's like, that's the song, and we're all out here together. Paul was talking about an inward kind of harmony that has been planted in you. It has captured you, it's captivated you, it has beckoned to you. And that's come to you, and that's an intervention by the Spirit in you. And it, that inward music frees you. It frees you to life. It frees you from what he says is the law of sin and death. What is that? Just as there is music that leads you to a place that's wonderful, and then there is music that leads you to a place of despair, the law that leads you to sin and death is to develop in you an affection for things that will kill you before you're dead. Uh, sin is more than just an error. Sin is a little death. The longer that you live in hate, the more like hate you become. The longer that you live in envy, the more envy swallows you up. The more you try to satisfy every single desire that comes your way, what you are doing is digging yourself with a shovel in the hole that you are creating, and you will never be able to climb out of it if you follow every indulgence, every satisfaction that you seek. Sin is not just shame on you. Sin is a little death. It is a death by a thousand cuts. It is a death before you die. And the Spirit, in implanting you a new song, a new story is taking you to a place where you find life and you see the wisdom in what he has shared with us. And that sounds all wonderful. Oh, who wouldn't sign up for that? How does he do it? Well, verse 3, watch. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Now there, his use of the law is in hashtag Moses, Hashtag two tablets, hashtag ten commandments, and the whole shebang. That law 
was great. And it showed forth the character of God, and it demonstrated the splendor of holiness. But stop for a minute. Step out of the biblical world for a second. Think of every single law that you have ever heard of or gotten busted for. <laughs> Those laws, they, they drew a line. They are out to preserve and protect a culture ostensibly. Sometimes we think, are you sure? Those laws, they, they provide a warning. They draw a line in the sand. And implicitly, they suggest to you, this is what a good righteous and fair society looks like that's what the laws are out to reflect but i will tell you this there is no law on any book in any culture in any place that has ever produced in you a love for the rule oh i love those stop signs oh i love the capital gains taxes the way that works like that i love that oh i so love it right it is a law it is a warning i don't cross that line but there is no law that's ever sort of giving this warm feeling. I love that. I know I want to obey it. In fact, if you were listening to Paul earlier in Romans chapter 7, he says when it comes to the law of God, you know what that does in us? Well, I've told you this story before. My daughter was babysitting a friend, friend's kid, who's there at the, you know, at the high chair, eating food, dropping some on the floor. Mom says, don't do that. And what does the kid do? I'll do it again. I'll do it with impunity. I don't care what you think. Something about the law, Paul says, provokes something in me that's like, I'm going to break it. That's me. That's you. That's all of us. The law is incapable of producing in us what it asks from us. That's what Paul is saying. And that is not any defect in the law. It is when you merge the law with who we are, it was, we were doomed because when we talked about the weakness of the flesh, it is that thing in us that loves to go off the rails. You, you get a train, here's rails, here's a canyon. Oh, put the train on the rails, goes across the rails, gets over the canyon, everything is fine. But you and I, even though there's no steering wheel on a train, we will find a way. <laughs> we will find a way to get this heavy thing that is our heart and our life off the rails and then into the cavern. It's just the way we're built. It's the, way we, we, it's the condition we find ourselves in, and it is that which the Spirit does. So what does Jesus do? What does the Lord do to address that? How does the Lord intervene? For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The Lord sends his Son to do for us what we could not do in ourselves. He came to condemn sin. Not us, but sin. Movie coming out this week. Robert Oppenheimer, famous nuclear physicist, arguably the one most responsible for the atomic age. He's a student of many things, even outside of the world of nuclear physics. He was also the student of religious traditions, had a great deal of appreciation for Eastern traditions. But he also had his appreciation for Christianity, such that he had a colleague named Isidore Rabi, who says this in Oppenheimer's doc biography. He says this, um, I remember once saying to Oppenheimer, how I, and Isidore Rabi is a Jew, I remember once saying to Oppenheimer how I found the Christian religion so puzzling, such a combination of blood and gentleness. 
And he said that, was it, that is what attracted him to it. Attracted to what? What about gentleness and blood would Oppenheimer be attracted to Christianity about? In Jesus, he saw gentleness. Whereas the rest of us would fly off the handle, act with a kind of righteous indignation that is usually a form of our own insecurity or a form of our own self-inflation and our pride, that was not in Jesus. He sees in Jesus a gentleness that is of the Lord. But we also see in Jesus the blood. A blood that by his work and his life and his death and his erection, des- des- resurrection condemned sin in the flesh. If you want to summarize the gospel in one sentence, I have a hard time finding a better sentence summary from what Matt Smethurst said recently. He said this, the lawmaker became the law keeper and died in the place of lawbreakers. That's the gospel. That is the gentleness of the son manifested through the blood that he shed that the law can no longer claim anything against us. Great. That's what the son does in the collaboration with the father. So where's the spirit? I mean, is the spirit in Paul's mind just sort of getting a, you know, the participation trophy? Well, you were here. Here you go. Here's your white ribbon. What does the spirit do? How does the spirit function in this that the father and the son have committed themselves to do to be a law giver and a law keeper to die in the place of law breakers. What does the spirit do? You see enough films in your life, you know that there's this thing, I think I got this from Andrew, so credit to Andrew uh, if you're the origin story for this, but when you see in film, right, there's a moment when in some films where it's called breaking the fourth wall, right? Everybody is doing their thing and they're interacting with each other and then at some point, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, JFK, um, look, at the end of the Passion of the Christ, when Mary has pulled down Jesus off of the cross, who is she looking at for about 90 seconds without blinking? She's looking at you. As if to say, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this? Breaking the fourth wall is to take everything that you've seen and the interaction there, and it's suddenly looking at you in the face and going, this, I'm talking to you. W- what, I- what is the Spirit doing? He is allowing Jesus to break the fourth wall with you. All of these thoughts and admonitions and promises, they suddenly become directed to you. That now you realize he's talking to you. He's not talking amongst themselves up there. He's talking to you. And you have a reason to be able to look back at him in the face and believe he's real and he's alive and he's there. I want to show you a scene from This Is Us that kind of gets at that. Uh, William is Randall's birth father, who he then puts up for adoption, and the Pearson family adopts Randall. But this is from William's early life. He's gotten picked up on a drug possession charge, and he's already been convicted, and he's about to be sentenced. And then what happens is this rather uh, unexpected, irregular kind of interaction between the judge who must issue sentence and William himself. So this should be pretty quick. We'll just be in and out. 
Your Honor, what is this meeting? I didn't know we'd be having any kind... I wanted a word with Mr. Hill before sentencing, in private. Sir, I can't advise my client to waive his rights to speak to you it's or... It's okay. I'll be right outside. I gave a young man 10 years today, younger than you. He stole a TV, 10 years for stealing a TV. It wasn't even a good TV. I didn't want to do it. Just like I didn't want to give five years to a different fellow yesterday, 15 years to another guy the day before that. I'm a judge, and the strange thing is, I don't make the rules. So, round and round it goes. I know the ending to each one of those stories. They haven't even been written yet. I'm here, Mr. Hill, because you said something yesterday and it stuck with me. You said you were the most disappointed man in the world. And I'm here to tell you, I fear I am a close second, Mr. Hill. Because I'm the man who writes terrible stories, day after day, and I can't change the endings. And that, sir, is a horrible disappointment. So, I want to see if we can find you a different ending here. I'm going to take a chance on you, get you out, get you help. I don't expect you to be perfect. I know you'll make mistakes just like the rest of us. But I will ask one thing of you. Yes, sir. I want you to look at my face. I want you to look at this too tired, too old, too fat face. Lock it in your brain. And if you ever start heading toward the ending I don't want to write, I want you to picture this ugly old muck. You picture this face. And you make a different choice. Can you do that? Can you find me a different ending to your story? He asks him to stare at the face of his judge, who is at the same time his advocate and the lover of the depths of that person's heart. What the Holy Spirit's intervention is for us is to not let us look away from Jesus, but to stare at the face of Jesus and say, you are looking at your judge, the only one who has a right to judge you, and it is that one who is saying, I am taking your judgment upon me, and I am giving you a new story. I am breaking the fourth wall with you, and I am calling you into a new world. And every time that you are tempted to fail at this, I want you to look at my face and remember my love for you is everlasting. That is the intervention of the Spirit.
and behind the way he addresses our condition and the way he applies that intervention, it all has one really brief intention behind it all. And it's what's there in verse 4. Why does he do all that? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We're going to elaborate on that next week. What's the intention that the Spirit has for you that he assists us in? That we would love holiness. That when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, that we would love him and keep his commandments. Yeah, the law is weak. It's incapable of creating in us what it asks from us. We, we failed at every step. But that's not an opportunity or an, a pretext for discarding the law. He is calling us to fulfill that law, but from a new vantage point, according to the Spirit, which is to say, I call you to holiness, but not out of a sense of fear that I will abandon you when you fail it, but out of a sense of a loving face that looks at you and says, I'm for you, and I'm so for you, that I went there not only to prove it, but to render the law and the enemy incapable of condemning you. What do you do with that? Where do you go with that? This may sound silly as a takeaway, but that song from Foreigner, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. Look, friends, that's your prayer request. Whenever his holiness feels eh or no, I, I, I would like you to pray the chorus from Foreigner. How silly is that? It ain't silly. Because if you remember Ephesians 3, what is Paul praying for the church? That you might know the height and depth and love of Christ. And that it might reach you not merely as a fact, but as something that you feel. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. The reason that you and I can pray that silly chorus from 1985 back to the Lord is because that's what he wants for us. To know that our obedience to him is meant to be from a place of love for him. And whenever that love feels remote and insubstantial and incapable of breaking through everything that I regret and that I'm haunted by and that I hate about myself, hmm, here's your moment. I want to know what love is, Lord, and I want you to show me. That's the Spirit's work. That's the intention that he has. That's the intervention that he applies for the condition you find yourself in. Let's pray. We do want to know what love is that, um, that allows us not to see what you ask of us as simply a burden that is old and that other people have followed but which seems so remote, old, obsolete, whatever it may be. I ask that you would help us even though we have not seen him, that we might love him. 
even though we may have never been with him, we might still rejoice that there is something that is true and eternal and good that is in you that we would feel with the help of your spirit. In whatever ways, Father, that we are running from our sin today, I pray that you would stop us in our tracks, not out of a sense of fear of condemnation, but out of a belief that your love has something better for us than anything else that we might be trying to find. Help us to rest in that in Jesus' name. Amen.